This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. I believe we promised on last week's show that we'd have a special guest today, and we're going to deliver on that with Michael Corda. He is Editor-in-Chief Emeritus of Simon & Schuster and a best-selling author. His previous works have included Charmed Lives, Ike, Country Matters, Ulysses S. Grant, and Journey to a Revolution. His current book is Hero, The Life and Legend of Lawrence of Arabia. The L.A. Times called it a fresh, engagingly written biography that adds substantially to our understanding of the strange, contradictory, curiously admirable, and compelling subject's life and contribution. I hope, dear listener, that you have at some point in your life checked out one of the great epic films of all time, if not the greatest, David Lean's 1962, Lawrence of Arabia. By the time we're done with today's show, you're going to want to see it, if you never have, or see it again as the case may be. This also means we're going to be probably using as our bumper music today the film score from that David Lean masterpiece, which is one of the great movie scores of all time. But let's begin today's program as we like to do with on this date in history, the date in question being the 17th of November. It was on November 17th in 1558 when the Elizabethan age began. Queen Mary the monarch of England and Ireland since 1553, died and was succeeded by her 25-year-old half-sister Elizabeth. The long reign of Elizabeth, who became known as the Virgin Queen for reluctance to, to endanger her authority through marriage, coincided with the flowering of the English Renaissance. An era I hope we'll be talking about uh, as regards the movie Anonymous in the weeks to come. And it was on November 17th in 1695 that Mustafa II became the Ottoman Sultan in Istanbul. His reign marked the first time the Ottoman Empire began to lose territory. And of course, in our second segment today, we're going to talk about the last time that the Ottoman Empire lost territory. That would be World War I, in which time it broke up into various client states. The nation of Turkey, and its then capital of Istanbul, was the cultural center of the old Ottoman Empire, and we're going to be talking about Turkey in the weeks to come as well. On this date in 1913, the first ship sailed through the Panama Canal, which was built by the United States, of course, on the Isthmus of Panama, formerly a part of the nation of Colombia, but conveniently for the United States, a newly declared independent state as the canal was built. On November 17th in 1941, Joseph Grew, ambassador to Japan, cabled the U.S. State Department that he heard that Japan had planned, in the event of trouble with the United States, to attempt a surprise mass attack of Pearl Harbor. The Office of Naval Intelligence ignored this warning. And on November 17th in 1944, following the murder of Lord Moyne, a British official in the Middle East, Prime Minister Winston Churchill warned Zionist terrorists that continued actions will damage their cause and called upon the Jewish community to police itself. Actually, one more. November 17, 1970, the Soviet Luna 17 probe soft lands on the moon. Hours later, Lunacod 1, a self-propelled vehicle controlled by Soviet mission control, rolled out and became the first wheeled vehicle to travel on the surface of the moon or any other body besides terra firma. Of course, that reminds us that on the 25th of next week, NASA is attempting to launch another space probe to Mars. 
And our fingers are crossed it will not wind up like the Russian probe currently orbiting helplessly around our home planet, unable to blast off toward Mars. Our quote of the day comes from Charlton Heston and is somewhat appropriate for our discussion in the second segment. Said Heston, an epic is the easiest kind of picture to make badly. Our quip of the day comes from Jimmy Kimmel, said last week, most analysts agree the big debate winner last night was Mitt Romney, who stuck closely to the strategy of not being any of the other candidates. Our stat of the day, and somehow we hope this is wrong, comes from the Washington Post, and is that Wall Street securities firms made $83 billion in profit during the first two and a half years of the Obama administration. More than the $77 billion in profits those firms made over the entire eight years of the George W. Bush presidency. You know, and I hate to refer to him as our nincompoop president, but he is not looking good. And, and yes, I, I mean President Obama. Our jokes of the day come from Dave Barry, one of America's most consistent humorists over the years, said Dave Barry, I recently attended a big art show held here in Miami Beach. It attracted thousands of serious art people who mostly wear black outfits and can maintain serious expressions no matter what work of art they are viewing. This is hard because a lot of serious art consists of bizarre or startlingly unattractive objects. No matter what the art is, a serious art person will view it with the somber expression of a radiologist examining x-rays of a tumor. And whereas the amateur will eventually give himself away by laughing or saying, huh? Or this is most embarrassing, ask an art gallery person, is this wastebasket a piece of art or can can I put my gum wrapper in it? At the Miami Beach Art Show was a ratty old collapsed armchair, worn, dirty, leaking stuffing, possibly housing active vermin colonies. I asked the gallery person if the chair was art. She said yes. It was a work titled Chair. I asked her what role the artist had played in creating Chair. She said he found it. She did note that Chair had been professionally created and shipped to the art show. Chair is for sale. The price is $28,000. Really, I looked up Chair on a serious art website which said The chair offers not a weedy patina of desuetude, but an apotheosis of its former occupant, said Dave. See, I missed that altogether about the desuetude and apotheosis. I thought it was just a crappy old junk chair some guy took off a trash pile and was now trying to sell for $28,000. There's no better time than this to jump into our first news story of the day, which is as follows. Quote, a cleaning woman damaged a $1 million art installation at a German museum by wiping up what she thought was dirt. Part of the piece titled When It Starts Dripping From The Ceiling by the late Martin Kippenberger was a trough painted to look as if it had been stained by rainwater. The cleaner scrubbed the trough clean, said a museum spokesman, and it's now impossible to return it to its original state. Now, of course, some people would question whether a a dirty old trough would be worth a million dollars in an art museum. But they would not be what Dave Barry calls serious art people. I also can't resist in all the hubbub over what happened at Penn State, probably portrayed best by the cartoon in The Bee last Sunday, noting the difference of the actual crime to (laughs) the university's response to the PR problem it had. And no, this correspondent was not terribly moved by the prayer session that was held before the last uh, Penn State game. 
Why don't you folks back there in Pennsylvania take up a collection for the victims of this guy? To which we would hasten to add, thank God Joe Paterno and his coaching staff was not in Iran. Because reportedly, Iranian officials have fined and indefinitely suspended a pair of pro soccer players for immoral behavior after one patted the other's buttocks during a goal celebration. Homosexuality is illegal in Iran, and video replays of the televised game clearly showed Persepolis defender Mohammad Nosrati affectionately squeezing the rear end of teammate Shais Razay. Said Jalal Yalhazadeh, a member of the parliament, what happened is absolutely not acceptable because it was a very ugly thing. A judge in Iran has recommended that the suspended players receive 74 lashes. You know, the poor people of Iran deserve better than the bunch of chimpanzees trying to run that state. <laughs> A statement I would hasten to add is an opinion of mine alone. In no way reflects that of KDVS, our sponsors, or the regents of the University of California. None of whom, so far as we know, have ever referred to the, to the government of Iran as a bunch of chimpanzees. All right, let's see if we can't skate off that thin ice with the good, the bad, and the ugly. According to the Week magazine, it was a good week last week for appeasing an apparently angry deity. After the House of Representatives here in the United States took time out from its work on the budget deficit, soaring unemployment, and other pressing problems to reaffirm, by a vote of 396 to 9, by the way, that our national motto is indeed, In God We Trust. And no, this correspondent has never quite understood that phrase, In God We Trust. And I would note that if that's our national motto, it's especially lame. Although it, did, it does produce a pretty good sign in certain business establishments that say, in God we trust, comma, but for all others, cash. It was, on the other hand, a bad week for our disgrace of a legal system with the news that convicted pedophile Eric Harris has now sued the Florida prison system for serving meals that are 50% soy protein. Harris contends that the soy is giving him stomach cramps and that depriving him of beef and pork during his life sentence constitutes cruel and unusual punishment. You know, I hope this one doesn't actually get before the Supreme Court. With the current gang in charge over there, they, they, might, they might rule in favor of this guy. And finally, it's an ugly week for the NBA. With the news that only 12% of Americans polled said they missed pro basketball now that the start of the season has been canceled because of a contract impasse between players and owners. This also is going to turn out to be very bad news for those who would like to dip into the public treasury and help, <laughs> help the finances of billionaires that want to build a new basketball arena or move them to Orange County. I'll have more to say about that in a minute. Another item from our disgrace of a legal system. Apparently an Oregon man is being sued by two people who are riding in his stolen car when it crashed. George Hinnekamp, age 91, had his car stolen by his handyman, Joseph Dinwiddie, who later crashed it while drunk, injuring his two passengers. The passengers are now suing Hinnekamp. Said Hinnekamp, I was surprised as hell. He took my car without permission and wrecked the damn thing. 
Let's do a bit of follow-up. Some commentary on the Earth's population reaching 7 billion. Comes from Ramon Solis, writing in the California Aggie. The article refers to UC Davis's Gifford Center for Population Studies, which is responsible for understanding the involvement of environmental change with human mobility and its impact on the environment, human security, and global health, according to its website. The article quotes UC Davis landscape architecture professor Steve Wheeler as saying the reduction of greenhouse gases is the top priority around the world, adding we're in deep trouble unless we address the issues of population, consumption, and equity. The article notes that although California has seen its slowest population growth, 10%, 10% is our slowest population growth in decades, wow, the state still faces its own microcosm of population and demographic changes. For example, in 2006, Elk Grove was the fastest growing city in the nation. If you're ever caught in Elk Grove during rush hour, God help you. We need to look more into that population center, which we will do. A couple of pieces from the B as follow-up about things we've talked about, which is the issue of uh, the 99% of us versus the 1%, those weasels on Wall Street. It's quite fascinating to note that according to New York University economics professor Edward Wolf, the top 1% of Americans, that cutoff, means a net worth of about $9 million. If you're worth $9 million, you're in the upper 1%. The article mentions that although politicians tend to hide their net worth, seven members of the California delegation made the cut, including Daryl Issa, chairman of the House Oversight and Government Reform Committee. Issa actually comes in number one among uh, congressmen uh, with a, of a net worth greater than $9 million. He's worth between $156 and $451 million, based, I guess, on his car alarm empire. We're keeping score. The other six members of California's congressional delegation who are in the top 1% include Dianne Feinstein, our senator, and Representative Nancy Pelosi, as well as Representatives Gary Miller and John Campbell, Democratic Representative Jackie Speer, and Republican Representative David Dreyer. An interesting bit of follow-up about our discussion uh, on gun control, how there was a move to enact some in the late 60s when blacks started arming themselves in American cities. So naturally, I was touched by the piece in the Sacramento Bee a few days back titled, State Laws Help Felons Regain Their Gun Rights. The article by Michael Luo from the New York Times notes that under federal law, people with felony convictions forfeit their right to bear arms. Yet every year, thousands of felons across the country have those rights reinstated, often with little or no review. Article notes that previously a small number of felons were able to reclaim their gun rights, but the process became commonplace in many states in the late 1980s after Congress started allowing state laws to dictate those reinstatements. The article gives an example of uh, what might result from this sort of thing. A man named Eric Zettergren came home after a party, drunk, found his girlfriend and another man in a state of undress, and proceeded to shoot the man at point-blank range in the head with an semi-automatic handgun. Article notes that uh, Zedegren had been barred from possessing firearms because of his two prior felony convictions. And of course, he also had a history of mental health problems and friends said he was dangerous. Yet his gun rights were restored without even a hearing under Washington state laws that gave the judge no leeway to deny the application as long as certain basic requirements had been met. 
Anyway, disturbing article. You may want to look it up and read it. Frankly, I don't think I have the heart. We do want to point out, we do want to point out however, that the, the federal government is willing to step up and make sure that states that want to have more liberal laws on marijuana, well, they just need to be uh, tightened up. In fact, while states are figuring out how they're going to better regulate uh, their own laws regarding marijuana, the feds are going to make all sorts of threats and invoke novel legal strategies to, tar- to harass cannabis dispensaries. I guess we'll just have to see about the, the federal government's response to mentally deranged people who are prior felons getting access to firearms. You think that, that, one, that one might deserve a review? What do you think? Now let's hear from a man who always enjoys telling us what he thinks, Mr. Will Durst. Hey guys, Will Durst here with a few words about the continuing saga that is the Herman Cain soap opera. We're entering daytime Emmy Award territory here with a plot changing faster than a chameleon on a plaid tablecloth. The situation remains fluid, or better yet, glutinous. From what we've seen, it sounds like a classic case of he said, she said, she said, she said, she said, she said, she said. Did I say cheesehead? Go pack, go. Kane claims that he's never engaged in any inappropriate behavior, ever. Hell, this presidency thing doesn't work out. He could run for pope. His staff even went so far as to say the sexual harassment allegations have helped the campaign. Helped? Wow. All he needs is a kidnapping charge. He could wrap this nomination thing up right now. Of course, some folks suspect the bravado is just campaign manager Mark Block blowing more smoke. Herman has changed the story almost as often as Mitt Romney changes positions. Almost, not not quite. First, he couldn't remember, then admitted a charge may have been investigated, but there was no settlement. Then there maybe was an agreement, but now he just wants to talk about football and refuses to accept any responsibility for keeping this sideshow alive, blaming Rick Perry, the Democratic machine, the media, and the evil dominion that is Pizza Hut. He might want to remember his advice to the occupiers. Don't blame Wall Street, blame yourself. (laughs) One problem is the former CEO of Godfather's Pizza has demonstrated all the sensitivity of a drunken bear. In a recent Detroit debate, he called House Minority Leader Pelosi Princess Nancy, which for a guy embroiled in sexual harassment charges is like trying to light a cigar by setting fire to a pool of gasoline. Who's in charge of his public relations? Lindsay Lowen, Anthony Weiner, Charlie Sheen? In three short years, we've gone from hope and change to grope and change. Ain't life odd. For Radio Parallax, I'm Will Durst. All right, let's take a short break and come back and talk about one of the most interesting figures of the entire 20th century, T.E. Lawrence, or, he's, or as he is better known in the world, Lawrence of Arabia. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. Stay tuned for a chat with Michael Corda about his new book on Lawrence. Lawrence. 